Welcome to Artifacts. I'm your host, Marissa Dickens, and today's guest is professional violinist with the Toledo Symphony Orchestra, Diana Anderson. Hi! Hi, it's nice to be with you. Thank you for coming on Artifacts. So it's actually really funny. I met Diana at a workout class, and then we put two and two together, and you're like, wait, you teach at Toledo Ballet? I'm like, wait, you're in the orchestra? Like, what? And so we got to talking a little bit about the shows and I was thinking I really want to have her on to hear more about your journey with music and how you got involved with the symphony because I've seen you know multiple shows here and I love them and so I want to have you on. Yeah one of the things I love about both music and exercising is that <laughs> our community worlds seem to kind of overlap a lot so I see people at the gym that I know from other musical events, and I know lots of people at musical things who also work out. So it kind of ends up being this interesting mix of like lives overlapping. In college, we had live music with dance, our dance classes, and I absolutely loved it. We had piano, and it just uh -huh. elevates the whole experience as a dancer. Oh, for sure. And we are really enjoying, too, having more opportunity to share live music with the, the dancers now at Toledo Ballet. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important too. And I, it's been really nice feeding off the dancers and having them telling us how much it means to them, not just to have us, but how, how they can dance better and they feel more free to do what they want to do when, when they have live music to work with. Because I know you guys play for the Nutcracker. Are you guys already rehearsing for that? No, we know that so well. One rehearsal, you know, those experienced players who have been doing it for years, we like to do the, see if you cannot turn the page and keep playing. <laughs> know it so well. Wow, so occasionally, that. Uh, occasionally there will be, you know, a, a new principal or a new set of dancers who want a tempo faster or slower. So the tempos might change, but the music rarely changes. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, let's dive in. So are you from Toledo or where did you grow up? I am not from Toledo. I grew up on Long Island, New York. Okay. And so a lot of people are surprised when they hear that because I don't sound necessarily like a typical New Yorker. But my parents are both from Oklahoma. And so they made their journey to from Oklahoma to New York when my father got his teaching job. So that's what brought them to the area. And I, as a resident of Long Island, I was able to do a lot of my studies in high school at the Manhattan School of Music because there was a, a commuter train really right at the end of my block. I could just hop on the train and be in Manhattan. So even though it was definitely a suburban, very you know quiet neighborhood lifestyle I had growing up, the city was just right there. Mm -hmm. So we could take advantage of a lot of what happened in the city. So is your family a musical family? Yes, my parents both were musicians, uh, both played violin primarily, but my father also played trumpet very, very well, did a lot of like marching band through college and had band teaching positions, as well as string positions. They both played in the symphony when I was growing up. So I kind of repeated that lifestyle with my kids, my parents would go to rehearsals and we would stay home, right? Or we would go with them to rehearsals or go with them to lots and lots and lots of concerts. So they also were great teachers. My dad was the string teacher in my school, but they also did one-on-one -on -one lessons. So really kind of my earliest memories of music were hearing the lessons 
that were taught in my house. There would be two sets of lessons going on. You know, my dad in one room with the student, my mom in another room. So by the time I encountered scales, etudes, solos, I already knew how they all went. I'd heard them all hundreds of times. Yeah. It made it easier for me. So you learned through kind of osmosis at home and then also, I mean, your parents probably taught you along with school as well. I started taking one-on-one lessons with my mom and I had my dad in my group class at school. Okay. But, you know, if anyone who's worked with a parent trying to have their parent teach them something, it doesn't always go so smoothly. So after a couple of years, I ended up taking lessons with a violin teacher who taught in the other school in our district and her daughters took lessons from my dad. So we did the family swap deal. And she was a fantastic teacher. And I had her through my last two years of high school. She really taught me all of my foundation. So was there ever a point where you're like, okay, not the violin or just violin just naturally was the instrument? Violin was naturally the instrument for me. I have two older brothers. My oldest brother chose violin or was given a violin. I can't honestly say which that was. And then my next oldest brother chose cello. So by the time it came to me, they had a small version of a violin and a small version of cello basically said, which one? So I I could have probably branched out into clarinet or something, but I I chose violin. I knew that I knew all the material already, you know, by ear. So I kind of figured it would be a natural progression. Our family did, as a family, play recorders as well, which a lot of times sounds like, you know, a little kid's elementary school instrument, but they're really pretty complex and there's a lot of different sizes and a recorder consort is a whole thing, uh, which my brother still does a lot of. But as a family, we did start with playing recorders together. And then as a family, we were able to play string quintets and string quartets together. So that was nice. I just remember, yeah, recorders like hot cross buns and you know, great <laughs> like that's the only one. <laughs> yeah, we went a little further than that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what other musical influences growing up as far as what music did you listen to at home? any artists or just different types of um, orchestral pieces that you were exposed to a lot? I am of an older generation. So all we had were, you know, LPs. We couldn't just go roaming on YouTube to find down the YouTube rabbit hole to find something we liked. So I listened to the LPs that we had and they were, I would say 99% classical orchestral usually, but lots of solo solo works as well. My parents definitely really just liked listening to classical music. I listened to a lot of public radio, WQXR, which was, again, a classical station, similar to the one that we have here in Toledo. So that was also slightly educational. You know, you would get, they would play a piece of music and talk about it and that kind of thing. So my my earliest memories of listening to music were just of the LPs that were in our very extensive family collection. So uh, when I got to be a teen and my friends were listening to other things, I would buy the 45s of like, rock around the clock or crocodile rock or you know that kind of stuff so I would have some 45s of like rock songs but that that was as far as that went from the time I was growing up I didn't start my own LP collection till college Mm -hmm. but I kind of branched branched out a little bit more but I still personally like listening mostly to classical music what's your favorite piece Ooh, that's really hard um there of course, the orchestral and so, uh, string repertoire is vast. 
But I think the piece that always hits me hardest every time is the Dvorak Cello Concerto. And it does feature the cello, but the orchestra parts are amazing. And just the way he Dvorak manages to kind of tug at emotions over and over and over, I just find super compelling. So every time that piece gets programmed, I'm like, oh, yay, I get to be a part of that, even though it's not my solo, it's the cello solo, but as a whole, that piece is just absolutely amazing. If I had to pick a favorite, I'd probably pick that one. Yeah, because yeah, like like you said, there's so much out there. It's like, how do you find your That's, your piece that you love? Yeah, and I tell my students if they're kind of not loving something we're working on, like, look, the violin repertoire is vast. We can find something else. Not every instrument can say that, but string players are pretty fortunate that we have just wide, wide choices. So you attended the Cleveland Institute of Music. What mm -hmm. was that experience like? Did you know, because again, because your family were professional musicians, was it just a natural, like, I'm going to do it? Or was it like, I'll, I'll see what happens and just, you know, go to music school. And Well, the at the time I knew I wanted to try to uh, be a music major. I didn't really necessarily think super hard about what was going to come after. But the conventional wisdom then and now is that if you want to progress on your instrument, you choose the teacher, not the school. Mm -hmm. So I auditioned for about five different teachers at different institutions. And my teacher told me that if I could get in with David Cerrone at Cleveland Institute of Music, that's where I should go. So he did accept me. And so I did go there. But that was really my first experience outside of New York. Oh. You know, so that it was different to be in the Midwest. It was a very formal environment in that, like, we had to dress up for lessons and classes. There was no, you know, Crocs and jammies for class, you know, especially for lessons. Some classes you could dress more casually, but it was, your lesson was considered a formal experience. Where I grew up, I was exposed to a lot of great players, but I still managed to be near the top most of the time in competitive events. But once I was at CIM, I was absolutely at the bottom. But that also makes you hungry. And I, I kind of thrived on proving myself constantly. Um, I didn't, didn't always succeed, you know, but I, I just always wanted to claw higher. My teacher was very hard on me. And I think in a way it was a good thing because, again, I, I worked really hard just to prove to him I could do it. Like he would almost present things as a challenge. Like I should give you this, but I don't think you're ready. I'm like, just give it to me, you know, or I don't think you're ready for this recital. I'm like, yes, I am. So it, it was good for me in that way. I'm glad that I was mentally ready for that. Cause not everybody would be, you know, some people might crumble in that environment, but for me, it, for me, it worked. CIM was a great school for me. It's small. I only had 14 people in my graduating class. Um, it was basically the size to have two symphony orchestras because outside of orchestral instruments, there I think we had classical guitar, a few classical guitar students, but that's it. It really was designed as a kind of like the Cleveland Orchestra is training these students for the future. So um, I ended up switching teachers halfway through and my teacher played in the Cleveland Orchestra and he was an amazing player, an absolutely amazing teacher. One of the best things about that for me was he had the same size hand as me. I have a very small hand to play the violin, especially this finger is really short. And his was also. 
So all the ways he would tell me to play things made a lot more sense to me. So that was kind of an aha moment. But in terms of what came next in the old days, even before my time there, people would get jobs by just being a good player and knowing somebody. So he would often say, you're ready for this audition. You sound great. Like, yeah, but there's 400 people that are going to be there. So by the time I was taking auditions, that whole scene had already changed significantly. So I went into school fully thinking, of course, I'll get a job at the end. And it was really hard to not be in a top job that I thought I would be in. So I did end up getting the Toledo Symphony job. But when I first got here, I really thought I would only be here a short time. But this is year 38, I believe, for me. This is my 38th season here. So who knew? I, who knew? <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Like, how, you know, how long you've been here. What makes a good player, like a good musician? Is it how cl- clean their sound is? I don't know. Because one could say, well, what was a good dancer? I'm like, your technique, your musicality and stuff. What, what makes a good musician? That's a good question. And it's a different question, whether you're saying orchestral musician or soloist. Uh, In the orchestral world, there is kind of a disconnect between what gets you past an audition or how to win an audition versus how to retain the job. To win an audition, you have to be an amazing soloist. That's the first thing you do is play a solo. And after that, it's technical. You, You play pieces off an assigned list and they have to just be, of course, technically perfect the first mistake you make, you're done because there's 399 people, you know, in line behind you. So it's both. But once you're actually in the job, you have to be able to blend with the section of players. And a great soloist may not know how to be part of a whole and like their sound might stick out. Some people can adapt to that super quickly, but not everybody can. So that there's, you know, it's a little bit of a disconnect between what it takes to win the audition and what it takes to do a good job once you're there. So for your Toledo audition, how did you hear about it? And then what did you have to, when you play your solo, do you pick your your music for your solo? They have to give you, they give you music. Like you have to play this. So there is um, a magazine called The International Musician where all professional orchestra auditions are listed. I still get it every month. In the back is like all the ads for open jobs. So it was in there, but also my brother was playing in Toledo at the time. So he knew it was coming. So he made sure I knew about it. I was living in Cleveland still, and I just basically drove up for the audition. For the solo, the concerto part, you can play whichever one you want. Some places will suggest it needs to be like romantic era or more recent because I don't know if they consider, you know, Baroque concertos not difficult enough or something. Uh, But you can choose that. Some will also want you to play solo Bach, which is always very revealing how a player accomplishes that. But then the list of excerpts from symphonic works they're fairly standard. They, they're not exactly the same from orchestra to orchestra, but there are certainly ones that you're going to have to play every single time. So they choose those, but you don't know which ones they're choosing till you get there. Mm-hmm. So you play your solo and then, let, then they'll say, okay, now play Mozart. All right, now it's Don Juan. All right, now it's Strauss. And you play three or four things. Usually they'll cut it down to like a next round and keep going till they have a winner or don't. Very stressful. Oh. It's so fascinating, this whole world, because I get the audition process from a dancer perspective, but yeah, music and 
because I went to Loyola in Chicago and they had a music program too. And I remember going there and they had musicians for auditions as well in that whole mm -hmm. different universe. It really is. The audition situation is very stressful and I don't think necessarily is a great predictor of how you will do on the job. I don't know if there's necessarily a better way. I mean, all orchestras have probation of some kind. So that's where you can determine if this great soloist who nailed the audition can blend in and fit or not. So, you know, hopefully you adapt quickly and, you know, figure out how that goes. But um, in terms of instruments too, if you have a very soloistic instrument that's very bright, for instance, it may not blend that great. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's that dichotomy too, is how, how well will your instrument blend or will it be good enough in the audition to stand out? Mm -hmm. So there's lots of things to think about with the audition process. It's, yeah, it's so crazy. Many and they're always behind a screen, you know, you never see the person who's auditioning. So that, that's a whole thing also. I didn't know that. Yeah, Bl blind auditions. Yep. Recently, we had somebody audition for a spot that they were had been subbing for, subbing in, and that's tricky because we've heard them play all year, did a great job, but and of course you're going to feel like, oh, I hope they get it, but then all these other players come in, and you don't want to favor the one person, so it just you know it has to be behind the screen, so that kind of thing or yeah if you have especially if you have players that the audition panel might already know or recognize mm -hmm. that makes sense so, yeah so what is it like being with the Toledo Symphony give me a typical day I mean I'm sure you have multiple different rehearsals for different shows and yeah um a typical day every day is a little bit different as you can imagine we have some typical weeks like this week is a very typical week Monday is our our day off so, of course, all us symphony musicians scramble to teach as many lessons as we can <laughs> on Monday because it's our day off. But we typically have rehearsals at 3 and 7.30, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then shows Friday and Saturday. So that's our, like, masterwork series. But we'll have things like pops where we might have just one rehearsal and then the show. Or, you know, just kind of depends on what it is, how many rehearsals we'll need for a show. But in terms of like the actual rehearsals, how that is run is up to the music director and it's not always the same. This week we have a guest conductor. So we don't really know how he's gonna run it, but typically it might be run through a movement of a piece, like run through the whole thing and then circle back and work. That's, that's fairly typical, but it's not always the same. It just depends on who's, who's working with us. Some, some like to spend more time like developing the string sound some like to spend more time developing the wind or the brass sound, you know, and they might hear different things that our regular music director doesn't always hear. So you kind of don't really know from rehearsal to rehearsal exactly how it's going to go. I enjoy that though. I think it's fun to hear from other voices too. Who has been your favorite guest conductor or music director that's been in so far? Ooh, that's hard too. We Over 30 uh, years. <laughs> I know. It's just, it, it accumulates over, over time. I really like Joanne Folletta. She is a very well-established, you know, female conductor. And I think she's really, she works, she's works really well with us. And she's so encouraging that I feel like she makes us want to play out and play better and more. So she kind of draws us out, but in a very humble way, it doesn't feel like a power, a power trip for her, but she's very insistent on getting what she wants all at the same time. So I, I think she's probably a standout for me. I really like working with her. 
So I like her music director, Len Trudell is great too. He's really fun and funny. We've worked with him some too. Uh, he has a great personality and he, he does work us hard though. He definitely works us hard. If he, he knows exactly what he wants and he doesn't really stop till he gets it, but he manages to make it fun and funny also. Mm-hmm. So it's been great working with him. And what's it like to perform, you know, when you hear the audience and, you know, you hear the claps and you have a room full of people for you personally, what is that feeling like? I actually really do like performing. I feel like I spend a lot of time looking at the audience of course, I should be looking at my music, but I'm always <laughs> checking in, like, do they look like they're into it? Or like, you know, that this really cool part is coming and I'm kind of looking at them, waiting for them to go, oh, you know, <laughs> so I, I do feel like that is important. It's important to me that they think it's as exciting as I do. As an audience member, I'm not a great audience member. And to be honest, I don't love going to concerts. Really? Um, I kind of feel like either I would rather be playing it or it's hard for me to, how do I describe it? I'm not good at sitting still. You should ask my husband about that. I'm very bad at just sitting in general. I like to be out doing, I like to be doing, you know, so it's hard for me to just sit for two hours and take it in. I feel like this is something I participate in. I don't receive if that makes sense yeah that does it does I like to sit and give me all the music (laughs) (laughs) well good I'm glad I'm glad those people are out there but yeah we do feed off of the audience and if you know we don't have a big audience you're like "Ah." but if we do have a big audience and you hear them clap it's so nice so yes we love that and what has been your favorite show that you've played so far with the Toledo Symphony oh gosh again another hard question that is mm, that is really hard there's too many I can't I can't really um anytime we play something by Mahler it's such an all-encompassing experience first of all every Mahler symphony is a long journey so it's usually like two hours hour and a half two hours in for one piece and it's always a huge journey you know, there's happy, there's sad, there's just everything in between. So you really do feel like you've gone somewhere, you know, experience something difficult and then come out of it. So I, I feel like anytime we play Mahler, I feel leaving sort of exhilarated and they tend to end really big and happy and glorious. So you feel good when you're done. Mm-hmm. So I, I would have to say anything by Mahler kind of hits me that way. I personally liked when you did the um, Beatles like I think it was with um, you had a guest too I think and you recreated some of the Beatles music with an orchestra with the soloist we had the soloist yeah she was amazing I was brought to tears in that performance I don't know maybe because I knew the music but just hearing it with the full-on symphony it was really nice (laughs) yeah she's and she's a great performer too so that that was really special she got the whole outfit and everything yeah yep yep and I just recently saw uh, Guster with okay that was that was a lot of fun I wasn't familiar with their stuff before but yeah that was a fun show I just like it when we get the opportunity to do non-classical things as well expand my horizon also you know I like that instead of always playing the same things yeah and it's nice I mean I'm don't know as much classical music, but I mean, I've been to classical performances, but it's nice to hear these like pop or alternative music, but that's being translated with, 
you know, whole strings and, you know, horns and all these things. It's nice. It elevates. I think it elevates everything. I don't know. <laughs> well, we did we did a Beethoven and Coldplay performance. I this wanted last to go so bad. I was out of town, but I love Coldplay. Yeah. So that was that was a cool collab. The same artist has done other collaborations like that, too. So. Yeah, I, I think that's fun, too. And I think the audience kind of really digs that because they like hearing Beethoven, but they like Coldplay. And so hearing them mesh is like, wow, who knew that could happen? Yeah. Oh, that's so so that was enjoyable, too. Let's shift a little bit to teaching. You taught at TSA. Is that correct? Yes, for 23 years. <laughs> so talk about so, that. And it wasn't, didn't you, were the, you were the director of the string orchestra there? Yeah, the string orchestra. So the, the visionary, the founder of the school, Marty Porter, Fantastic trumpet player also. And he happened to play in a summer orchestra that I played in along with my husband and my parents. We were all in the same summer orchestra. And he just, yeah, he decided that he wanted to start Toledo School for the Arts. Um, And he knew I had a lot of string expertise. So he asked me to come on board to start the string program. And, you know, I'm saying director of string orchestra, but at the beginning, we just had you know, three or four kids and, you know, adding as we went, adding instruments as we went. And eventually it became the string orchestra. I had not considered school teaching as a career path at all until this happened. And I was already 37 by the time the school was founded. So I didn't start my teaching career until much later. But I really like the aspect of taking chaos, the chaos that is, you know, 30 different individuals and turning it into magic. And I think the students are always a little blown away with that as well. When you start working on a piece and you just think, oh, this is gonna be impossible. Where do I even start? And I'm sure you've done that with putting dance pieces together too. You just can't imagine this is ever going to work. But then, you know, baby step after baby step and it starts to come together and you can finally get to the fine tuning of things and making it a musical presentation. I just find that so incredibly rewarding or just seeing that, you know, students who don't think they can accomplish something. And then look, you just did this thing. For you, what is it? What is your role as a teacher? Like what, what do you like to bring to the table? Well, I think for private teaching, my goal is just to make sure each individual student can accomplish whatever their individual goal is. And that's going to be different for every student. Like I've had, you know, for instance, I had a student who was deaf and for her, the goal wasn't to go to a music conservatory. It was to be able to be a successful orchestra and their school orchestra. That was so important to her. So her lessons were just about helping her through her orchestra music. Whereas I might have another student who wants to be a music major. So for them, it's learning repertoire, you know, concertos and uh, technique. So it just kind of depends on what their main goal is. But in terms of like the school teaching, I really was striving to make sure every student had a similar experience. So like, for instance, not every student is going to be able to have a reliable place to practice. Not every student is going to be able to purchase a cello. Not every person is going to be able to transport an instrument back and forth. So I kind of tried to structure my orchestra rehearsals so that we had enough skill and drill of the difficult parts for everybody that students didn't feel like if you know if they didn't practice outside they would be behind i never wanted anyone to feel like they were at a disadvantage because of their circumstances so some students of course would absolutely go home and want to practice usually students taking private lessons but 
for the students at school who weren't on that trajectory, I wanted them to feel like their experience didn't demand that, you know, that they could through just being in the orchestra experience every day, accomplish so much. I, I think a lot of them got that out of it. That was always what I was striving for. And I hope, I hope that they feel that way. That is really important to have the same opportunity within a school setting. What has been, I've asked this a couple of times now recently in my other podcast, but I like, I like the question of what has been the best advice you've received? And then what do you wish the best advice you can give to your students? Well, I, I got some advice from another school teacher early on, which I fa- I thought initially was harsh, but I understand it now. And this person told me to never lie to your students. And what they meant was, if somebody plays something for you and it's not good, don't tell them it's good. You know, just make sure that they know you still need to fix A, B, and C. Because otherwise you sort of get this false sense of I'm doing okay or this is good enough. So I, I used to find that harsh, but I have my own way of looking at that now. So that's sort of in the lines of advice I've gotten from teaching. I don't know, from performing, I have kind of learned too that people, that audience members take what they take from a performance and they're not focused on tiny details that you experienced yourself. Mm-hmm. So like my father had told me, if somebody tells you, you did a really great job, just smile and say, thank you. <laughs> Don't go through your list of, oh, but this and this and this, because that detracts from their experience as an audience member. They enjoyed it. I totally relate to that. (laughs) Yes. Let them enjoy it. So, I mean, that's not necessarily advice I got for my career, but it's just a way of looking at what you produced. And it doesn't have to be perfect to be musically valid. I recently had a student who had been preparing a solo to play with her school and I went and watched her perform. And of course she did fine, but she was very upset afterwards. She was in tears thinking about everything she did wrong. And then I couldn't see her for the next week. She had a conflict. And by the time I saw her, I said, so let's talk about that. What did you feel like went wrong? And she said, Oh, I think it was fine. So it was just in the moment. She was so focused on every little thing she couldn't see immediately that overall it was a good presentation. Even though you don't want to lie to them and tell them it was perfect. I hope that overall students can see that it doesn't have to be perfect to be valid. Can you share any upcoming performances with the Toledo Symphony that you're excited about that are coming up? Well, I mean, two shows that I'm actually kind of excited about. We have Oliver Hazard, the the band coming, and they're originally from Waterville, I believe. And then there's a girl named Tom. Have you heard about them? I saw the picture, like the whole promotion about it. Yeah. And that's another group that is local-ish, Northwest Ohio. And I think it's really fascinating to have these groups that, you know, just started here and they've gone on to, you know, American Idol or wherever they've gone and just done so well, having these huge careers. And now, you know, we're going to work with them here. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what they, what they have. I've seen both groups. I've seen both of their things on YouTube and promotional. And I think that's going to be really, really fun. Mm-hmm. This week, we have a very normal classical program. Yeah, we're playing Beethoven's Eighth Symphony, Brandenburg Third Concerto, and then a Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto with Rachel Barton Pine. She's an amazing, amazing, amazing soloist. So Y'all should go to that for sure. But it's a, it's really our most kind of standard issue classical concert. 
And those generally get big audience because people still like the standard classics. They're familiar and they know what to expect. So that's going to be a, that's going to be a great show this weekend. Are you ready for rapid fire questions? I have a couple for you before we go. Okay. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite composer, just overall. Oh, that's really that's really hard. There's so many good ones. I don't know. I I talked about Dvorak earlier because that's I think that cello concerto is probably my favorite classical piece that there is. So overall, I've been exposed recently to more and more Dvorak, and I think that if I had to pick a favorite, he might be it. There's something about commonalities in his music, like he is inspired a lot by folk music, both you know, in his native country, but also he spent a lot of time in the United States. So that makes it feel like classical music that isn't, you know, super heady highbrow because it has sort of more common person feeling to it. But also I think he's really good at evoking lots of different emotions. So I, and I feel like that's easy to grab out of his music. Everyone knows New World Symphony and the theme from that. And it's so beautiful. I think it, it's, his music is just very relatable very satisfying to play a lot of pieces that are satisfying to hear are not always the most fun to play but Dvorak is fun fun to hear what's an example of a piece that's like really good to hear but it's not good to play most Debussy pieces Uh, a lot of French music is uh soundscape Mm. so if you're in the audience and just listening you hear like this magical sunrise happen for instance over a slow period of time so what that means is each instrument is doing like little doodles. <laughs> you, so you're part of the soundscape, but you are not a melody. Mm. So it's it's kind of like more athletic and being a much smaller part of a giant picture. And I know it sounds amazing, but it's not as fun, at least in my opinion. To <laughs> like a Mozart opera is another example. Oh my gosh, I love Mozart and I love Mozart operas so amazingly written but they're very athletic very hard to play physically so at first you're starting at the beginning of the opera and you're so happy this is so fun you know three hours in you're like oh my gosh how am I going to get to the the last act finale you know it's just a physical workout that's very difficult but it has to sound light and fluffy and fun Bach Mozart or Beethoven Bach, Mozart, or Beethoven. Um, hmm. I wrote my college essays on Bach. At that time, I I think the essay prompt was something to the effect of if you were on a deserted island and you could only have one thing, what would it be? <laughs> and I picked Bach because, uh, first of all, it's vast. There's lots of it, but so incredibly intellectually written, um, but there's always so much you can do with it. The Bach solo violin pieces can be played on so many other instruments and and it does get played on so many other instruments. It sounds perfectly valid. So I feel like it, Bach is so translatable to other instruments, other genres too. Mozart, not as much, but I, of course I love, I love Mozart too for the drama and the playfulness, uh, but I feel like intellectually, I would go with Bach. Going yeah. with Bach. What's an instrument you wish you could play? Cello. Mm-hmm. I, I I can play it enough to teach it, and I do. I did for many years, but I can't play it. Play it. 
I, I, I can't just dive in and sound good at all. And I, I love cello. If I had to do it all over again, I might have chosen cello. Really? You heard yeah. it first, folks. Turn of events. <laughs> <laughs> There's still time, I guess. I mean, I play piano pretty well. I, through high school, I played piano and violin. But I wish I could play cello. If you could play for anybody, who would you play for? My mom. That's easy. So my mom is 89 and she she is, you know, having aging difficulties at her age, as most of us do do or will. But music, music always, she, you know, that's a given. You start a song, she can finish singing it, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, if I could play for anyone right now, be my mom. What is one musician you wish you could see live? Musician I could see live. Um, I feel like I've seen so many. Uh, that's, mm, do they have to still be alive? <laughs> I would probably circle back to Beatles because I did, I did listen to a lot of Beatles in college and just, again, the variety of, you know, their, their scope is just huge. And to see how they work together would, would have been fascinating. Mm-hmm. Toledo's best kept secret. Oh, you're going to think this is so corny. The Y. <laughs> I love the YMCA. T-Y-M-C-A. It's so good. And people don't realize how good it is. It's not <laughs> as everything. I have people there. I have my YMCA friends. And I can just do, you can do so many things. You don't even have to work out. I go to West Y and there's just people hanging out. Like they'll go to a class and sit and like have muffins and tea afterwards. You know, it's just such a great place. There's so many branches and so much to do. I mean, close seconds to that would be library and Metro Parks. But I love my Y. I don't know what I would do without it. When you're not playing music, what do you like to do for yourself? Well, I'm into target archery, and that's been something I've done since I was about seven or eight. It was a passion as a child. It was a family thing. My dad presented that to us. My brothers and my mom all participated. I got really into it. And then for you know many, many, many years, I just didn't have time at all. And then in the last decade, I've taken it up again. So I, I have archery friends, and I, I go every Monday night. I do that. I like to make beaded jewelry. That's really, really fun. I make more jewelry than I can give away, honestly. Not everybody wants it, but I make it anyway. I work out, as you know. I spend, I'm very passionate about working out, and I love cats. I have one cat. I would love to have more, but I, I don't. I resist, but I'll, I love everybody's cat. What's your cat's name? Her name's Emmy. Emmy, I have a cat named Gizmo. He's chunky, black and white little cat, tuxedo cat. <laughs> Emmy's very fat. She's one of those striped cats. She has an, <laughs> We named her Emmy because she has a very distinct M on her head. Mm-hmm. So she's, she's, she's also very chunky. Chunky cats are cute. <laughs> they are. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. You can follow Diana on Facebook at Diana Dyer Anderson. And then make sure to check out the Little Symphony for upcoming performances at uh, www.arctoledo.com slash Symphony. 
Um, now I want to go see a show. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. It was great. It was great talking with you, Marissa. Yes. I hope we'll see you at the Y soon. Yes. Oh yes. I've been trying to go. I've been trying to go. Yeah. Thank you again, and thank you to everyone who's been listening in. And stay tuned for another episode next month. Baby, 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 baby.